Book Two, Chapter Seven of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Seven A Bridal Night. A few moments later, our poet found himself in a tiny arched chamber. Very cozy, very warm seated at a table which appeared to ask nothing better than to make some loans from a larder hanging nearby, having a good bed in prospect and a loan with a pretty girl. The adventure smacked of enchantment. He began seriously to take himself for a personage in a fairy tale. He cast his eyes about him from time to time to time, as though to see if the chariot of fire harnessed to two winged chimeras, which alone could have so rapidly transported him from Tartarus to Paradise, were still there. At times, also, he fixed his eyes obstinately upon the holes in his doublet, in order to cling to reality, and not lose the ground from under his feet completely. His reason, tossed about in imaginary space, now hung only by this thread. The young girl did not appear to pay any attention to him. She went and came, displaced a stool, talked to her goat, and indulged in a pout now and then. At last she came and seated herself near the table, and Gringoire was able to scrutinize her at his ease. "'You have been a child, reader, and you would, perhaps, be very happy to be one still. It is quite certain that you have not, more than once, and for my part I have passed whole days, the best employed of my life at it, followed from thicket to thicket, by the side of running water, on a sunny day, a beautiful green or blue dragonfly breaking its flight in abrupt angles, and kissing the tips of all the branches. You recollect with what amorous curiosity your thought and your gaze were riveted upon this little whirlwind, hissing and humming with wings of purple and azure, in the midst of which floated an imperceptible body, veiled by the very rapidity of its movement. The aerial being which was dimly outlined amid this quivering of wings appeared to you chimerical, imaginary, impossible to touch, impossible to see. But then, at length, the dragonfly alighted on the tip of a reed, and, holding your breath the while, you were able to examine the long gauze wings, the long enamel robe, the two globes of crystal, what astonishment you felt, and what fear, lest you should again behold the form disappear into a shade, and the creature into a chimera. Recall these impressions, and you will readily appreciate what Gringoire felt on contemplating, beneath her visible and palpable form, that Esmeralda of whom, up to that time, he had only caught a glimpse amidst a whirlwind of dance, song, and tumult. Sinking deeper and deeper into his reverie, so this, he said to himself, following her vaguely with his eyes, is La Asmeralda, a celestial creature, a street-dancer, so much and so little. Twas she who dealt the death-blow to my mystery this morning. Tis she who saves my life this evening. My evil genius, my good angel, a pretty woman on my word and who must needs love me madly to have taken me in that fashion. "'By the way,' said he, rising suddenly, with that sentiment of the true which formed the foundation of his character and his philosophy, "'I don't know very well how it happens, but I am her husband.' 
With this idea in his head and in his eyes, he stepped up to the young girl in a manner so military and so gallant that she drew back. "'What do you want of me?' said she. "'Can you ask me, adorable Esmeralda?' replied Gringoire, with so passionate an accent that he was himself astonished at it on hearing himself speak. The gypsy opened her great eyes. "'I don't know what you mean.' "'What?' resumed Gringoire, growing warmer and warmer, and supposing that, after all, he had to deal merely with a virtue of the Cour de Miracles. "'Am I not thine, sweet friend? Art thou not mine?' And, quite ingenuously, he clasped her waist. The gypsy's corsage slipped through his hands like the skin of an eel. She bounded from one end of the tiny room to the other, stooped down, and raised herself again, with a little poniard in her hand, before Gringoire had even had time to see whence the poniard came, proud and angry, with swelling lips and inflated nostrils, her cheeks as red as an appy apple, and her eyes darting lightnings. At the same time the white goat placed itself in front of her, and presented to Gringoire a hostile front, bristling with two pretty horns, gilded and very sharp. All this took place in the twinkling of an eye. The dragonfly had turned into a wasp, and asked nothing better than to sting. Our philosopher was speechless, and turned his astonished eyes from the goat to the young girl. "'Holy virgin!' he said at last, when surprise permitted him to speak. "'Here are two hearty dames!' The gypsy broke the silence on her side. "'You must be a very bold knave!' "'Pardon, mademoiselle,' said Gringoire, with a smile, "'but why did you take me for your husband?' "'Should I have allowed you to be hanged?' "'So,' said the poet, somewhat disappointed in his amorous hopes, "'you had no other idea in marrying me than to save me from the gibbet?' "'And what other idea did you suppose that I had?' Gringoire bit his lips. "'Come,' said he, I am not yet so triumphant in Cupido as I thought. But then, what was the good of breaking that poor jug? Meanwhile, Esmeralda's dagger and the goat's horns were still upon the defensive. Mademoiselle Esmeralda, said the poet, let us come to terms. I am not a clerk of the court, and I shall not go to law with you for thus carrying a dagger in Paris in the teeth of the ordinances and the prohibitions of Monsieur the Provost. Nevertheless, you are not ignorant of the fact that Noël Lascrevin was condemned a week ago to pay ten Parisian sous for having carried a cutlass. But this is no affair of mine, and I will come to the point. I swear to you, upon my share of paradise, not to approach you without your leave and permission, but do give me some supper." The truth is, Gringoire was, like Monsieur Despreaux, not very voluptuous. He did not belong to that chevalier and musketeer species who take young girls by assault. In the matter of love, as in all other affairs, he willingly assented to temporizing and adjusting terms. And a good supper and an amiable tete-a-tete -tete appeared to him especially when he was hungry, an excellent interlude between the prologue and the catastrophe of a love-adventure. The gypsy did not reply. She made her disdainful little grimace, 
drew up her head like a bird, then burst out laughing, and the tiny poniard disappeared as it had come, without Gringoire being able to see where the wasp concealed its sting. A moment later there stood upon the table a loaf of rye bread, a slice of bacon, some wrinkled apples, and a jug of beer. Gringoire began to eat eagerly. One would have said, to hear the furious clashing of his iron fork and his earthenware plate, that all his love had turned to appetite. The young girl seated opposite him, watched him in silence, visibly preoccupied with another thought, at which she smiled from time to time, while her soft hand caressed the intelligent head of the goat, gently pressed between her knees. A candle of yellow wax illuminated this scene of voracity and reverie. Meanwhile, the first cravings of his stomach having been stilled, Gringoire felt some false shame at perceiving that nothing remained but one apple. "'You do not eat, Mademoiselle Esmeralda?' She replied by a negative sign of the head, and her pensive glance fixed itself upon the vault of the ceiling. "'What the deuce is she thinking of?' thought Gringoire, staring at what she was gazing at. "'Tis impossible that it can be that stone dwarf carved in the keystone of that arch, which thus absorbs her attention. What the deuce! I can bear the comparison!' He raised his voice. "'Mademoiselle!' She seemed not to hear him. He repeated, still more loudly, "'Mademoiselle Esmeralda!' Trouble wasted. The young girl's mind was elsewhere, and Gringoire's voice had not the power to recall it. Fortunately, the goat interfered. She began to pull her mistress gently by the sleeve. "'What dost thou want, Jolly?' said the gypsy hastily, as though suddenly awakened. "'She is hungry,' said Gringoire, charmed to enter into conversation. Esmeralda began to crumble some bread, which Jolly ate gracefully from the hollow of her hand. Moreover, Gringoire did not give her time to resume her reverie. He hazarded a delicate question. "'So you don't want me for your husband?' The young girl looked at him intently and said, "'No.' "'For your lover?' went on Gringoire. She pouted and replied, "'No.' "'For your friend?' pursued Gringoire. She gazed fixedly at him again and said, after a momentary reflection, Perhaps. This, perhaps, so dear to philosophers, emboldened Gringoire. "'Do you know what friendship is?' he asked. "'Yes,' replied the gypsy. "'It is to be brother and sister, two souls which touch without mingling, two fingers on one hand.' "'And love?' pursued Gringoire. "'Oh, love,' said she, and her voice trembled and her eye beamed. That is to be two and to be but one, a man and a woman mingled into one angel. It is heaven." The street-dancer had a beauty as she spoke thus that struck Gringoire singularly, and seemed to him in perfect keeping with the almost oriental exaltation of her words. Her pure red lips half-smiled. Her serene and candid brow became troubled at intervals under her thoughts like a mirror under the breath, and from beneath her long, drooping black eyelashes there escaped a sort of ineffable light 
which gave to her profile that ideal serenity which Raphael found at the mystic point of intersection of virginity, maternity, and divinity. Nevertheless, Gringoire continued, "'What must one be, then, in order to please you?' "'A man.' "'And I,' said he, "'what then am I?' A man has a helmet on his head, a sword in his hand, and golden spurs on his heels. Good, said Gringoire, without a horse, no man. Do you love anyone? As a lover? Yes. She remained thoughtful for a moment, then said with a peculiar expression, That I shall know soon. Why not this evening? resumed the poet tenderly. Why not me?" She cast a grave glance upon him, and said, "'I can never love a man who cannot protect me.'" Gringoire colored, and took the hint. It was evident that the young girl was alluding to the slight assistance which he had rendered her in the critical situation in which she had found herself two hours previously. This memory, effaced by his own adventures of the evening, now recurred to him. He smote his brow. "'By the way, mademoiselle, I ought to have begun there. Pardon my foolish absence of mind. How did you contrive to escape from the claws of Quasimodo?' This question made the gypsy shudder. "'Oh, the horrible hunchback!' said she, hiding her face in her hands, and she shuddered as though with a violent cold. "'Horrible in truth!' said Gringoire, who clung to his idea. But how did you manage to escape him?" La Esmeralda smiled, sighed, and remained silent. "'Do you know why he followed you?' began Gringoire again, seeking to return to his question by a circuitous route. "'I don't know,' said the young girl, and she added hastily, "'But you were following me also. Why were you following me?' "'In good faith,' responded Gringoire, "'I don't know either.' Silence ensued. Gringoire slashed the table with his knife. The young girl smiled, and seemed to be gazing through the wall at something. All at once she began to sing in a barely articulate voice, Cuando las pintadas sabes, mudas están y la tierra. She broke off abruptly, and began to caress Jolly. That's a pretty animal of yours, said Gringoire. She is my sister, she answered. Why are you called La Esmeralda? asked the poet. I do not know. But why? She drew from her bosom a sort of little oblong bag, suspended from her neck by a string of adreserac beads. This bag exhaled a strong odor of camphor. It was covered with green silk, and bore in its center a large piece of green glass, an imitation of an emerald. Perhaps it is because of this," said she. Gringoire was on the point of taking the bag in his hand. She drew back. "'Don't touch it! It is an amulet. You would injure the charm, or the charm would injure you.' The poet's curiosity was more and more aroused. "'Who gave it to you?' She laid one finger on her mouth and concealed the amulet in her bosom. He tried a few more questions, but she hardly replied. What is the meaning of the words, La Esmeralda? I don't know, said she. To what language do they belong? 
They are Egyptian, I think." "'I suspected as much,' said Gringoire. "'You are not a native of France?' "'I don't know.' "'Are your parents alive?' She began to sing, to an ancient air. Mon père est oiseau, ma mère est oisée. Je passe l'eau sans nacelle, je passe l'eau sans bateau. Ma mère est oisée, mon père est oiseau. Good, said Gringoire. At what age did you come to France? When I was very young. And when to Paris? Last year. At the moment when we were entering the papal gate, I saw a reed-warbler flit through the air. That was at the end of August. I said, it will be a hard winter." "'And so it was,' said Gringoire, delighted at this beginning of a conversation. I passed it in blowing my fingers. So you have the gift of prophecy?' She retired into her laconics again. Is that man whom you call the Duke of Egypt the chief of your tribe? Yes. But it was he who married us, remarked the poet timidly. She made her customary pretty grimace. I don't even know your name. My name? If you want it, here it is. Pierre Gringoire. I know a prettier one, said she. Naughty girl! retorted the poet. Never mind, you shall not provoke me. Wait, perhaps you will love me more when you know me better, and then you have told me your story with so much confidence that I owe you a little of mine. You must know, then, that my name is Pierre Gringoire, and that I am the son of the farmer of the notary's office of Gonesse. My father was hung by the Burgundians, and my mother disemboweled by the Picards at the siege of Paris twenty years ago. At six years of age, therefore, I was an orphan, without a soul to my foot except the pavements of Paris. I do not know how I passed the interval from six to sixteen. A fruit-dealer gave me a plum here, a baker flung me a crust there. In the evening I got myself taken up by the watch, who threw me into prison, and there I found a bundle of straw. All this did not prevent my growing up and growing thin, as you see. In the winter I warmed myself in the sun, under the porch of the Hôtel de Sens, and thought it very ridiculous that the fire on St. John's Day was reserved for the dog-days. At sixteen I wished to choose a calling. I tried all in succession. I became a soldier, but I was not brave enough. I became a monk, but I was not sufficiently devout and then I'm a bad hand at drinking. In despair I became an apprentice of the woodcutters, but I was not strong enough. I had more of an inclination to become a schoolmaster. Tis true that I did not know how to read, but that's no reason. I perceived at the end of a certain time that I lacked something in every direction, and seeing that I was good for nothing, of my own free will, I became a poet and a rhymester. That is a trade which one can always adopt when one is a vagabond, and it's better than stealing, as some young brigands of my acquaintance advised me to do. One day I met by luck Dom Claude Frollo, the reverend archdeacon of Notre Dame. He took an interest in me, 
and it is to him that I to-day owe it that I am a veritable man of letters, who knows Latin from the De Officis of Cicero to the Mortuology of the Celestine Fathers, and a barbarian neither in scholastics nor in politics nor in rhythmics, that sophism of sophisms. I am the author of the mystery which was presented to-day with great triumph and a great concourse of populace in the grand hall of the Palace de Justice. I have also made a book which will contain six hundred pages, on the wonderful comet of 1465, which sent one man mad. I have enjoyed still other successes. Being somewhat of an artillery carpenter, I lent a hand to Jean Manguet's great bombard, which burst, as you know, on the day when it was tested on the Pont de Charenton, and killed four-and-twenty curious spectators. You see that I am not a bad match in marriage. I know a great many sorts of very engaging tricks, which I will teach your goat. For example, to mimic the Bishop of Paris, that cursed Pharisee whose mill-wheels splash passers-by the whole length of the Pont aux Meuniers. And then my mystery will bring me in a great deal of coined money, if they will only pay me. And finally, I am at your orders. I, and my wits, and my science, and my letters, ready to live with you, damsel, as it shall please you, chastely or joyously, husband and wife, if you see fit, brother and sister, if you think that better." Gringoire ceased, awaiting the effect of his harangue on the young girl. Her eyes were fixed on the ground. "'Phoebus,' she said in a low voice. Then, turning towards the poet, Phoebus, what does that mean? Gringoire, without exactly understanding what the connection could be between his address and this question, was not sorry to display his erudition. Assuming an air of importance, he replied, It is a Latin word which means son. Son, she repeated. It is the name of a handsome archer who was a god, added Gringoire. A god! repeated the gypsy, and there was something pensive and passionate in her tone. At that moment one of her bracelets became unfastened and fell. Gringoire stooped quickly to pick it up. When he straightened up, the young girl and the goat had disappeared. He heard the sound of a bolt. It was a little door, communicating no doubt with a neighboring cell, which was being fastened on the outside. "'Has she left me a bed, at least?' said our philosopher. He made a tour of his cell. There was no piece of furniture adapted to sleeping purposes, except a tolerably long wooden coffer, and its cover was carved to boot, which afforded Gringoire, when he stretched himself out upon it, a sensation somewhat similar to that which Macromagos would feel if he were to lie down on the Alps. "'Come,' said he, adjusting himself as well as possible, I must resign myself. But here's a strange nuptial night. Tis a pity. There was something innocent and antediluvian about that broken crock which quite pleased me. End of chapter 7